Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. It's 30 with Murdy with your host, Sweeney Murdy. Welcome back, everyone. On this episode of 30 with Murdy, a wonderful conversation with Bobby Richardson, the great Yankee second baseman from the 1950s and 60s. Richardson made his Major League debut at 19 with the Yankees in 1955, and he played until 1966, retiring at the age of 30. Richardson was an eight-time All-Star, a five-time Gold Glove winner, and a member of three World Series champions. Richardson finished second in the 1962 AL MVP voting, second to teammate Mickey Mantle. And in 1960, when the Yankees lost to the Pirates on Bill Mazeroski's famous home run, Richardson had 11 hits, 12 RBIs, and became the only player in history to win the World Series MVP as part of the losing team. Richardson is famous for catching the final out in Game 7 of another World Series, 1962. The Giants had runners at second and third with two outs, and Willie McCovey due up. Ralph Terry just given up a double to Willie Mays, but Matty Alou stopped at third base because of a terrific play in right field by Roger Maris. That set the stage for Terry versus McCovey and the line drive that was hit right at Richardson to end the World Series. It would be the last Yankees World Championship until 1977. For a trip down memory lane about coming up with the Yankees as a teenager in 1955, about trading in the Corvette he won for being World Series MVP, for a station wagon, and so much more. Here's my conversation with Bobby Richardson, recorded over the phone early in January. We start with that famous line drive Richardson caught to end the 1962 World Series. Bobby, the first thing I want to ask you is, everybody in baseball shifts now, and there are shifts everywhere. They obviously weren't doing that quite so much when you were playing, but when you are positioned where you are against Willie McCovey, why was it? What told you to go there when probably by today's conventional standards, you'd be pushed even further to the right? Um, yes, true. Uh, it, it really starts when the play evolved and, and uh, Willie Mays hit the hit the double uh, that put the runners on second and third, and there were two outs, of course, and Ralph Howe came out to talk to Ralph Terry. And I walked over and was talking to Kubek and Willie Mays was standing on the bag, and Kubek said, I sure hope uh, McCovey doesn't hit the ball to you. And I said, why? He said, well, you've already made one error in this series. I'd hate to see you blow one now. And that's what I was kind of thinking about when I when I walked back. I laughed. Of course, he was kidding. We roomed together, the minors and the majors. And Willie laughed, too, a little bit. But anyway, uh, I thought, sure, they'd walk McCovey and pitch to the right-handed Orlando Cepeda. And uh, they decided Ralph wanted to pitch to him. He said, I'll pitch carefully, and then if they get behind, we'll put him on base. And that sounded good to Ralph Houck, and so he went back in. Well, on the very first pitch, McCovey hit a ball way down 
the foul line. He had pulled it, and it was foul, but he hit it really hard, and I just instinctively moved over. I thought, man, he's out in front. I'm going to move over some, and I moved over toward first base. And and then Ralph Terry turned around and looked at me, and he said, man, Bobby's playing out of position. I need to... uh, I need to move, and he took one step, and I remember the step, and then he changed his mind and went back and picked up the rosin bag and, and went on pitch, and he told me later that he thought maybe I was playing him too far to pull, and he wanted to uh, to move me over a little bit. Then he said, well, now, wait a minute. He's played 14 games at second base, <laughs> and uh, I'm here out on the mound. Uh, I won't say anything, and, of course, as it turned out, he hit the ball right to me. Now, two things happened. McCovey told me later when we were together, he said, you were playing me out of position. And I said, I just didn't know it. <laughs> and um, and he hit the ball right to me, of course, as it turned out. Now, I looked at that a little bit later, and there's just a certain angle that you can see that shows how close to first base I was. Um, it was a different angle that I'd never seen. My son Robbie showed it to me when he was down one day. We had a different angle altogether. He had it on his phone. And after I caught the ball, he pointed out to me how close I was to the first base line. You could see the line. Mm -hmm. And so uh, to answer your question, we didn't do any shifting where you move across the bag and leave an open base wide open or anything like that. That just wasn't done in the day that we played. But I can remember playing deep on some, and I can remember playing uh, both, uh, both ways, mostly to pull, not too much the other way. If it was a straightaway hitter, I wouldn't be back on the outfield, but I'd be, uh, you know, straight away. Uh, and so I hope that answers your question. Yeah, yeah. it's funny, though, but that was all entirely on your own after the foul ball that McCovey hit. That had nothing, yes. no coaches yes. moved you, nobody else told you to move anywhere. No, no. Um, I don't remember any times I, that Ralph Houck was my manager in those days. When Stingle was there, I'm sure that Frank Corsetti might have moved me one way or the other, but... Uh, I don't remember anybody ever moving me. When and, uh, when you talked about the Mays double uh, right before that, you were lined up for the relay home and threw a relay home. Were you surprised that Matty Luce stopped at third base on that play? Well, I was, uh, of course, thinking he was going all the way. And so, yes, I was. And there was no idea in my mind that he stopped. Of course, I wouldn't hold the ball because you could hold the ball from right there and he could still score from third base, you know, later. Mm-hmm. So as soon as I got it, my idea was to get rid of it and to make it as quickly as possible. Rogers, the one, made the great play. Mm-hmm. Very muddy outfield. All the rain we'd had, and uh, I actually saw him slip a little bit, and he slipped when he threw the ball to me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went a little bit farther because not too many people knew he had a little bit of a sore arm at that time. Mm-hmm. And had it been in uh, right center field, Kubek probably would have taken the throw instead of me, but we had talked about all of this and knew it ahead of time, and the relay came to me, and I threw it home. I was surprised that he didn't go try to make it home. Yes, I was surprised. There were a couple other sequences in that game that I just watched highlights of last week, and it, it you know they jumped out to me. One that I think you probably had a pretty good view on was the catch that Tom Tresh made in the seventh inning when Mays came up the previous time. He came up again in the ninth and doubled, but he hit one to left field in left the seventh. Field, yes, I remember very well. And, you know, the interesting thing is that I, I went up and took um, Joe Morgan's place pre- presenting the Gold Glove Awards, I think it was three years ago now, 
uh, might have been four, but maybe three or four years ago, and Mays was there, and he said, Richardson, and he can't see now. He can't see it all. He said, come over here and hold my hand so I can know where you are. And I went over, and he said, I want you to know something. He said, I want you to know that if I had been on first base, when I hit that ball to right field for a double, I'd have scored and we'd have won that game. And I said, you probably would have. I said, I'm sure you wouldn't have stopped, that's for sure. And he meant that, too. That was that's funny. That was just his comment. The other part that I saw that would have changed the, the outcome of the game, or at least the score at a certain point, uh, the Giants did a wonderful job. Um, I think I guess it was in the top of the inning. Bases loaded, nobody out for you guys. You were forced out at home. Uh, Billy O'Dell, the lefty, gets Roger Maris and Elston Howard. You gets you on the force out to Maris, and then Howard hits into a double play. I mean, you're talking about game seven, bases loaded, nobody out. That's a tremendous uh, escape by the Giants. With the right people up, too. Right. I don't know whether you knew this or not, but Billy was one of my closest friends. We quail hunt together for years down here in South Carolina. Hmm. <clears throat> and so he was going for his 20th win. He had 19 wins at that time. And had uh, McCovey's ball been a base hit, he would have been voted the most valuable player wow. uh, of the World Series, I'm sure. Wow. As it turned out, Ralph, who had lost uh, to Mazeroski two years earlier, mm-hmm. um, was the most, most valuable player. Now, I, w- I want to ask you something, Bobby. It's been it's obviously been a long time, and I know you've been asked about it a lot, and you clearly have all the details in your mind. But if you close your eyes, can you still feel the ball hit your glove uh, in this particular case, yes, because the ball was unusual. Metal used to hit balls like this. It had overspin on it. So it looked like it was going to be over my head when it was first hit, and then it came down really quick, really quick. The overspin just brought it right down. And so because I could get both hands on it, I remember using both hands, not catching it with one hand, but catching it with both hands, and going down with it, just absorbing the blow of the ball and going down with it. When I saw McCovey 45 years later, and I had not seen him between that time, he said, uh, I bet your hand is still hurting. <laughs> and I said, you hit it hard. And he said, you know, honestly, that's one of the hardest balls I've ever hit. He said it did have overspin. It went down. But he said, when I hit it, I thought it was just clearly over your head. Have you ever seen the um, the Charles Schultz comic the of the Peanuts cartoon? Yes, I have. <laughs> yeah. Somebody, somebody sent me those. He was really a giant fan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just a few. He was feet in there twice, I think. I yeah. was. Yes, he did put it in twice. That's terrific. Um, and the other, you know, you mentioned the Mazeroski home run. Can you still? Can you still picture that? Can you still close your eyes and hear the ball coming off of his bat and and, and no, see what happens? But what my thought and my remembrance is, as soon as the ball was hit, I looked to Yogi in left field. Yogi was playing left field. And when I looked at Yogi, I could tell the ball was out of the park and he could not make a play on it. And I knew it was over. Hmm. And uh, I knew we had to get off the field in a hurry because I knew the fans would be on the field, and they were. And uh, I took my hat off and ran to the dugout as soon as the ball cleared. Because sure enough, if you look back, they're chasing him all the way around the bases. Yeah. And, uh, some were even right behind him and got in his way a little bit. Yeah. The, uh, the, from what people have said, just a, just silence in that clubhouse afterwards, right? Yes, it was. And the mantle was actually crying a little bit. And he was crying not because we just lost, but because he thought we had the better team and lost. 
And of course, we did come back the next two years and win and win world championships. Yeah. Nobody had ever won an MVP award um, on a, off a losing team like that. How did you find out you won, and what was your reaction? Well, um, let me think. His name is Ed Fitzgerald, and he was the editor of Sport Magazine, and he's the one that walked in. He's the one that makes the decision. Sport Magazine was the mud that gave the Corvette away. Mm-hmm. And he walked into me, and we were dressing, and there wasn't a sound in there. And he said, you've been named the most valuable player in the series. And I was shocked. I didn't think that, that no, I didn't think that there was such a thing as a losing team winning, <laughs> nor did I even think that I had done anything that would deserve it at that time. And so I was shocked. And I remember Mantle kind of cheered up a little bit. He said, well, some good has come out of it. <laughs> so, yeah. He he was he and I were pals, as you probably know. I remember yeah. that. Probably my biggest thrill in baseball, if you ask me what it was, was 1962 when I led the American League in hits. And I, I hit the ball pretty good during the course of the year, hit over 300. And Mantle missed 30 games because of injuries. But he hit 30 home runs, the 30th on the last day of the season. And um, he was voted most valuable player when he received the award. He said, I'm honored, thank you, but I think Bobby should have won it. Wow. And that was my biggest thrill in baseball. Wow. <laughs> For Madeline that said that. Yeah, you finished second to him that year, right? I did, yes. Wow. Right. So yeah. is it true that the, the Corvette that you talked about that you got for winning that World Series Most Valuable Player, that you traded it in for a station wagon? Well, it is true. <laughs> uh, um, the reason is because I had two boys at that time, and that's a two-seater. Um, it's just two bucket seats in the front of the sports car, of course, and I couldn't get my two boys in there. And uh, I just felt like I'm an avid outdoorsman. I'm a hunter, and uh, I needed a good station wagon to drive back and forth to New York. It was still early in my career in baseball. And so I traded an old Pontiac station wagon and the Corvette in for a new Pontiac station wagon hmm. and a Jeep. Wow. And the Jeep was the one that I could hunt in, but it was a Jeep that was good enough that I could drive it in back and forth from the stadium. I I needed two cars in New York because we had carpools occasionally. Mm -hmm. And my wife enjoyed coming into the games. And occasionally with the carpool, I needed a a car to drive in for them too. And so I would drive the Jeep in on those occasions. Any of your teammates give you a a hard time about trading in a Corvette? Uh, yeah, and my son, especially my son, was born <laughs> after I retired from baseball. I have three boys, uh-huh. two are pastors, and the third son, Rich, is uh, he's a little more, uh, he, he couldn't understand it. He said, Dad, I can't believe you traded that for a Jeep. <laughs> or, uh, for a Jeep, I have a friend here in town that's got one just like it now. And to be honest with you, he's the most beautiful Jeep I've ever seen, exactly like mine. Except it was a color green, a beautiful cascade green that they only made, I think, 100, 147 of them in the total lifetime of the Corvettes. And he turned down 95,000. It's in perfect shape. He's had it restored, of course. And, and uh, my son said, Dad, I can't believe you traded yours for that. And I said, well, I can't either now, but at the time it was the thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> Bobby, you made your big league debut at 19 years of age and i still you know i still find it fascinating when when players come up at that age and they're so young what do you remember about your first two weeks in the big leagues well gil mcdougall got hit by a line drive 
and uh, I was called to come up. I remember Ralph Howe called me. I was playing in Denver, Triple A Ball Club, having a pretty good year. And I remember that Ralph Howe said, you've been called up to the major leagues. And he said, I've got good news for you. He said, Johnny Pesky was a coach in our ball club. And he said, I've got you booked on the same flight as Johnny Pesky's wife. She's flying to New York, and you'll be sitting by her. And so all the way from Denver, Colorado to New York, I was talking to Johnny Pesky, who is the great Boston Red Sox player, who was a coach along with Thomas Soda and Whitey Herzog for our ball club that year. Hmm. And so the thing I remember the most is talking to her and asking her, tell me about uh, the major leagues, you know. And, of course, Johnny played a long time in Boston. During the time he played, uh, they weren't as often, but I think the 46 World Series is the one he was kind of famous for when he Mm -hmm. supposedly held the ball and uh, Enos Slaughter scored from first base on a ball to to left field, I Mm -hmm. guess it was. Mm -hmm. Almost single, I think, maybe. But anyway, uh, when I got to the stadium, I remember that I went out the next morning. I was staying at the hotel, which is right by... Um, by, right by Yankee Stadium. It's called the Grand Concourse. And I remember walking down and going in, and uh, I didn't know exactly how to get in, and uh, I kind of fumbled around a little bit, didn't know which gate. They hadn't really told me the details like that. I had a little trouble getting in, but I finally <laughs> got in, and then had to, I'd been there once before. I'd worked out when I was 17 years old, so I remembered enough that I finally got my way down to the clubhouse and, and got in. And then I remember that uh, that Frank Crescetti, when I was 17, had taken an interest in me, and my locker at that time was was next to Frank that I dressed in, and it was the same locker. They put me in that same locker. And so Crescetti was there, and he was an inspiration. I remember he talked to him. He said, I'll hit you some balls when you come out. He said, you're in the game today. And he said, I'll hit you some ground balls at second base. He said, you're playing second. When I came up at 17, I was the shortstop. Mm. And he said, I'll hit you some at, uh, at second base as well. And he said, uh, of course, you'll have your batting practice and all. And I remember coming through the dugout or and into the club, into the field area. And, boy, the field was just beautiful. Yeah. Now, I've got to admit something, and that was that very simply that that would have been in 19, I guess, 55. And, and the, the greens were absolutely beautiful. We only had one year when the infield had a problem, and that was 1960. So if you watch any of the 1960 World Series, and I've got some highlights film, it's the worst-looking infield. There's spots in the infield where they just couldn't get grass to go and they couldn't replace it all. But at that time, I remember thinking. Now, the odd thing was that I had a lot of telegrams and congratulations and things like that. and, And the thing I remember is that I was just concentrating on the game and I did not uh, field a ground ball. I didn't have a ball hit to me. Uh, I walked one time. I did have a stolen base, and Yogi Berry hit a home run, and we won the game. Mm. And so I thought, man, oh, man, is this good. Now, <laughs> I didn't do too well because I don't think I got another hit the time I was up there. Gil McDougal got well, and I was sent back, back down uh, to Denver. When, uh, when you did come back up and it was to stay, Casey Stengel, uh, I've read that you didn't think he was really the best manager for you, uh, that Ralph Houck was. Is it true that, that Casey actually pinch hit for you before your first turn at bat in the game once? Um, no, that wasn't me. Okay. Yes, it was, too. Yeah, it was yeah. the first inning. It was the first inning. But I think I was batting down eight or something like that, and so we had one inning behind us. Mm. 
And so it wasn't like I was just walking up. It was the, it was probably the second inning, but yeah. he did pinch hit for me the first inning. And I said to him, in a nice way, I thought, well, why did you start me if you go pinch hit <laughs> before I get about to bat? He said, you get your, he followed me in the clubhouse, said, you get your little mitt and go down to the bullpen and warm up right into it. I'm managing this ball club or something like that. Oh, wow. <laughs> And, uh, but now I wasn't the only one. There were others that, uh, Cleet Boyer got pinch hit for like that one time in the first inning. He just changed his mind, saw a situation, and he had so much talent on that ball club that whatever he did would usually turn out right. You might be a left-hand hitter, and he'd call on you to pinch hit against a left-handed pitcher when the circumstances were just not what most managers would do. Hmm. But that left-handed hitter that time would get a base hit that win the game, and Stengel would, uh, get the benefit of it and we did have a lot of talent we won nine out of the first 10 years so all of those years with Stengel we were in the playing for a world series 59 was the only year we didn't didn't win out of the time I played well you've you've already mentioned Frank Crosetti and some of the coaches that you had you know um and it's it's really amazing throughout Yankee history how the great players in Yankee history kind of keep uh, they keep a line moving by, you know, coaching the next players in front of them who are legendary players. And I, well, I had another Hall of Famer that uh, came back just to upgrade his pension, and that's what a lot of them were doing. DiMaggio came back, likewise, to update his pension. He was our hitting coach for a couple of years, but uh, um, the the one I remember most was Bill Dickey. Bill yeah. Dickey came back and took an active interest in me. And that was the year that I led the American League in hits. And he was with me. He talked to me. Talked to me about being in the batting circle, what to think about, and to to watch the counts. And you know that uh, if you hit on the counts, you're a much better hitter. And uh, he was. He left after '62, and so I didn't have it oh, wow. to encourage me the rest of the time. But uh, I do remember. And we did have great coaches, and you can add some others. Uh, to that, Wally, Wally Moses came back. Now, he wasn't a Yankee, but he was a great hitter. He was a hitting coach one year, and he was tremendous as well. Bill Dickey got you to use a heavier bat that changed kind of how he you did. hit, right? That's exactly right. He did. He said, you know what? He said, you're not a home run hitter. You need to hit the ball with authority, and you need a heavy bat. And so I never broke any bats. I was not one of those guys that would have a thin handle and break the bat. But uh, it really helped me as a hitter. And if I had to do over again, I'd probably choke up, choke up a little more and maybe add another ounce or so to it, do it again. <laughs> <laughs> so how heavy was the bat that you ended up using? It wasn't that heavy, but uh, 30, 34 probably. And wow. of course, Madeline, some of those used one, maybe a little lighter than that, but they would whip it. But uh, I've got, um, uh, it was a K55 model, I remember that. But yeah. just the weight was... Uh, I think maybe 34 and a half ounces or something like that. A little bit, not a lot, but a little bit heavier than most bats. I mean, compared yeah, to not, today, that's, I mean, that's a tree Luke's trunk. Bats down. Yeah, Lou Gehrig's bats, theirs were heavy like that, too. Both of them were. Yeah, compared to today, that's like swinging a tree trunk. That's exactly right. Wow. You, uh, how much pride do you take in the fact that you walked in your career more than you struck out? Never even thought about that. Yeah, really? Um, just embarrassed that I struck out three times against Koufax in one game. <laughs> and, and I sat by him at Yogi's funeral uh, a couple of years ago, and he said, when I got you the second time, I knew I had good stuff. <laughs> 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 and I laughed. But now, i got to be honest, he pitched the fourth game, too, and I got a hit off him in the fourth okay. game. So <laughs> we lost all four, but I, 
I did get a base hit off him. Well, there's somebody else that you had a really good World Series against. When you played the Cardinals in 64, Bob Gibson ended up uh, uh, pitching the Cardinals to the series win there, but you did very well against him. You were 7 for 14 off of Gibson. Yeah, but I made the last out in the, in, mm. in the game. And wow. that's, that's what I think about. Um, he he uh, he would challenge hitters. He'd try to make you hit his best pitch, of course, but he had a good fastball. And then, yeah, I remember he mostly threw me fastballs. And I did, but uh, that took all the joy out of it uh, when when I, I flied out to shallow center field. I was trying to hit a line drive through the middle. And uh, I got under just a little bit. The ball was up just a little bit, and I got under a little bit. Um, I, I did bat against him again later in life. I was 65 years old and playing in an old-timers game. I can't remember. I think it was in Denver, but somewhere like that. And uh, the guy in front of me hit a home run. <laughs> and the guys on the base said, I wouldn't go up there if I were you. <laughs> and I said, wait a minute, I'm 65. We don't wear helmets. <laughs> Surely he wouldn't. They said, you wait and see. First pitch right behind my neck. <laughs> <laughs> and then Gibson laughed, and then he threw the ball in there. He was a good guy. He and I served on the board together for the bat team, mm. that baseball assistance team. Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny that Game 7, what sticks out to me when I see the highlights of it, something that would never happen today. You have a starting pitcher who's starting the ninth inning, and he gave up two home runs in that ninth inning, and he was clinging to the lead, but he didn't come out of the game. They left him in the ball game. I, and you was there like this sense of you're going to get to him as you came to bat in that ninth inning? No, there was not that sense. And I can reverse that and say I can remember the same thing happening with Whitey Ford. And we as infielders or our teammates would say, leave him in there. Don't take him out. That's when you get in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> so I didn't think anything about taking him out. I didn't think all that he was losing it. He was throwing just as hard to me that last time at bat. Uh, home runs are a funny thing. I think Phil Lynch was one of the home runs. Who was the other one? Do you remember? I don't remember who the other one was. It, I, I, I remember Gibson telling the story about looking into the dugout, uh, looking into his dugout, um, I think after giving up the first home run, Johnny Keene said, you know, it's okay, you'll be okay. He gives up the second home run, he looks in the dugout like, are you sure? But, I mean, he wasn't coming in. He wasn't coming out of the ballgame at that point. You know, it's odd that you would say that because, if you remember, that manager came over to New yes, York yes. for the very next season. And I saw him take Whitey Ford out mm. in a ball game very similar to that. And we lost the ball game, and 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 he actually was fired for the very thing you're talking about, or just he didn't he let's see I don't know how to say this. He was a wonderful guy and a great manager, of course, but he just was not a Yankee type manager. Mm-hmm. He was a good man. When you have a a record that. I think is hard to match or break. And if the Yankees had gotten to the World Series in 1997, a couple of guys might have gotten there. But you played in 30 consecutive World Series games um, between 60 and 64. Do you, when you look back now, like I've I've watched a lot of teams and I and, and I see the journey it takes from spring training to October and how hard it is. But when the Yankees are getting to the World Series almost every year that you're in the big leagues at that point in your career, did winning feel hard to you? Did the journey feel difficult or did was it just you guys were a machine? Um, I would have to be honest by saying uh, we expected to win and uh, 59 when we didn't win White Sox won 
we were saying now, this is not right. What did we do wrong? <laughs> we won a lot of games, but yeah. Chicago had a good, exceptional year. But uh, I, I think that the, the Yankees did have a winning tradition. We'd be behind in the seventh inning just a run or so, and to us that was being, we're, we're in good shape. You know, we, We'll win this in the next two innings. When you uh, you retired at the age of 30 and still a very young man, even in those days, a young man for baseball, uh, what made you give up the game at age 30? Well, I ruined my whole career with Tony Kubek. And Tony and I are both family men. I had my children earlier than Tony did, but he now lives in Appleton, Wisconsin. He's a family man. And the two of us decided, hey, listen, we're missing out on the priority in life. And this was both of our feelings, not one. And we talked about it extensively, even before. We tried to retire when we were 29. And uh, we decided we were going to do it. And Sports Illustrated heard about it. And they sent a photographer over and took our picture and said, this will be on the cover of Sports Illustrated. And we were they were already orchestrating what was to be said. Why would you retire at 29? And it was to spend more time with our family. We had won nine out of the first 10 years that I had played and same with Tony, and uh, we just felt like now our priority was our family. Now, what happened then is Ralph Houck moved up to general manager, Mm -hmm. and they signed Bobby Mercer. Mm -hmm. And so Ralph came over. He knew about it because we'd gone to him, and he said, now, I know we had a uh, plan that both of you retired, but I've signed Bobby Mercer. I want one of you. It doesn't matter which one, either one, to play one more year and help break Bobby Mercer in. Well, they talked about it, and I talked about it, and they decided, Tony said he'd play one more year, and that suited me fine. And I said, well, I'm planning on retiring. And when you retire from baseball, you have to put it in, and you can't come back after you make that agreement until April or something like that, way off. It's a funny thing. And the only reason I know that is because Roger Maris wanted to retire when they traded him to the Cardinals. And I explained to him, Number one, they can't cut your salary more than 20%. And number two, when you go and actually make that decision, you can't come back without going through a delay getting back in baseball or something like that. But anyway, to make a long story short, Tony got called into reserves. And playing touch football, he got a pinched nerve, and Mayo Clinic said he had to retire. Hmm. That uh, it might result in a permanent paralysis. Now, the odd thing is, that is exactly what has happened in his life. Several years ago now, he had a, a situation where uh, he, I, I don't remember how it happened. He didn't know what, if he got hit, if he got hit or anything like that. But when I went to the doctor, the doctor said, uh, you're going to have a, it was a stroke that kind of paralyzed his right side a little bit. And even right now, today, he can't pick up a spoon or a, be- or a pen with his right hand. Oh, wow. So he didn't sign autographs. But, with his left hand, he can drive and do all of the things necessary to, to enjoy a good life. But anyway, to make a long story short, so Ralph called me, and he said, um, Tony, you can't play. Will you play one more year? I sure. I said, sure. He said, we had a gentleman's agreement that one of you would. And I said, sure, I'll be glad to do it. Hmm. Well, I did. It was not a good year. We finished in last place. And the funny thing is, as soon as Bobby Mercer got there, he was called into that same draft that Tony was in, and he missed all but two weeks of the year. And so he was not there at all for me to break in. Hmm. And uh, so the interesting part of that, and this is kind of personal, but at the same time it tells you a little bit about the Yankees. 
uh, Ralph said, uh, let's let's talk about a contract. He said, what would you like to make? And I said, well, I said, the Yankees have been good to me. And I said, uh, I didn't have too good a year. Would it be hard if I just get the same thing I got last year? And he kind of laughed. He said, okay, we'll do that. <laughs> and when the contract came, he, it was. He gave me the same thing I made the last year. But it was a five-year contract, one to play. And for the next four years after that, he'd give me 15000 a year. Oh. And so actually, if you add it up, and if the papers are right, I was making 5000 more than Mantle was making for that last <laughs> year. <laughs> but I didn't know it, didn't, uh, and, and, and Ralph and I, he was like a father to me. I don't know whether you know this, but at his funeral, his son Bobby called and asked if I would have his funeral mm. down in Florida. He was a wonderful guy. I went into Green Beret as a private, came out as a major. Toughest man I've ever seen. I remember one time we had clinched a pennant traveling by train, at that time, and he might have been a coach. It might have been before his manager. I can't remember. But anyway, no, Ryan Duran was there, so he'd have been the manager. And Ralph was smoking a cigar, and Ryan had been drinking. And he said, well, Ralphie, we did it again, and pushed Ralph's cigar. And he picked him up with his right hand, hit him with his left hand, and knocked him out, and <laughs> took him down and put him in his roommate. And the train said, we'll wake him up tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> he was tough. He was tough. Wow. Did did the you mentioned finishing in last place? You know the Yankees were getting older at that point, and uh, the teams that you were on were not as dominant. Was if if the Yankees were still the Yankees that you knew from the say the earlier sixth part of the sixties? Do you think you would have stayed on playing a little bit more and tried to win a little bit more, or were you? Saying- well, I've got to be honest. It was a different ball club there then, and here's the way you could see it: we had the younger guys that came in that had a lot of talent. Pepstone had more talent than anybody, and so Muscarin was traded to the Dodgers. They won a pennant that year, of course, and it was all right with him. Then he went to White Sox, which was his home, mm-hmm. and finished out in a wonderful career. But the Yankees were, those last years, trading off younger players. In fact, during my lifetime, they did the same thing. Jerry Lumpy, Norm Seaburn, different ones like that. And they'd pick up a Roger Maris or a Nino Slaughter or different players like that, Johnny Mize. And, and, and I could see it going down during the time that I played the talent. Now, the draft had something to do with that, too, mm-hmm. at that time. But, mm-hmm. uh, but to answer your question, the way I judged it, we'd have a World Series meeting to divide up the shares when we won. And it used to be when I was there, it was the totally opposite. The veterans said, "Well, these are young players. Let's uh, let's just uh, let's give him a full scholarship. He he can need he needs the money. He can use the money. Mm-hmm. The bad boy. Let's give him a full scholarship." And then when that younger generation of Bowden and Pepitone and Lentz and so forth came in. In that same meeting, you'd see it go the other way. Mm-hmm. Well, he was only here a little while. That means more money for us. You right. could just see the difference all, all right. down the line. Wow. And so I was ready to get out. And that uh, it was a difference in those last years, yes. Did you ever think that a few more years might have uh, earned you a ticket to the Hall of Fame? No, I never thought about that. Mm-hmm. My priority was my family at that time. And I was a, <clears throat> I was a pretty good player on a great ball club that had Hall of Fame players. And if you go right down the middle, Yogi Berra, man, all time. Bill Dickey, of course, the same. Elston Howard's the only one. He was as good. And Yogi Berra was the only person in the country could keep him from being a star. They finally got wise and put both bats in the lineup at the same time. And that's why Yogi was playing left field and Howard was catching. But then right on through, you got Rizzuto, and then you got Madeline Centerfield and DiMaggio in Centerfield. And um, I, I don't, 
I'm not a Hall of Fame player, but at the same time, I've had the privilege of having the prayer at the Hall of Fame on four different occasions. When Johnny Bench was inducted, when Nellie Fox was inducted, and also when Rizzuto was inducted into the Hall of Fame, I was asked to have the prayer at the Hall of Fame. And so I acknowledge, uh, I've got my favorite picture. I was there one time, and Johnny Bench had just married Miss South Carolina, and he and I were sitting together Hmm. as the players were coming in. And Ted Williams came in on a wheelchair, and he got out of his wheelchair. He came over and said, Richardson, I want to talk to you. He said, you're the only person that I like to talk to because you have bird dogs, you're a quail hunter, you love the outdoors. I know you shoot a 28-gauge over and under. And he said, let's talk about hunting and fishing. And <laughs> about that time, uh, 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 let's see, Yogi Berra came up and joined the conversation. Stan Musial came over and, and joined the conversation. And Sandy Koufax came over. And Johnny Bates got up, knowing what it would mean to me, and took a picture and sent it to me about a month later. So I have a picture in my lobby out here, in my lobby, in my den, that uh, is a picture of me with all of those Hall of Famers. Wow. So in a sense, I've been associated with them in a wonderful way. I'll say, that's terrific. Is it true yeah. that, I mean, you were a lifelong Yankee. Uh, I read that you became a fan of the Yankees early after watching Pride of the Yankees. Is that- that's right. I was 14 years old. And I got cut from my high school team as a freshman. <clears throat> and um, I I was also a basketball player. I was All-State a couple of years in basketball, junior and senior year. And we were in tournament place. So I was late going out for the uh, um, uh, baseball team, high school baseball team. And, and they gave us a three-day workout. And in three days, you don't do anything. You run, and they field a few balls, you know, and that's about it. And the batting cage a couple of times, maybe. Big catcher went out with me, and he made the team, and, and the coach told me to come back next year. Well, that coach was a, a serviceman that had just come in that year and coached that one year. He didn't coach anymore, and the next year I made the team. But after I got cut, I went out for the American Legion team, and we won the state championship, the regional championship, and we were playing in Charlotte, North Carolina, against Richmond, Virginia. That's Sumter, South Carolina, playing against Richmond, Virginia. And in the one of that last game, went to the last game, would go to the American Legion World Series, then in Omaha, Nebraska. And before that last game, they took us out to see the film Pride of the Yankees. Of course, Babe Ruth plays his own part. Bill Dickey was in that film. And Lou Gehrig played the part of Gary, of, of, of Lou Gehrig. Uh, Gary Cooper. Gary Cooper yeah. played mm-hmm. the part of yeah. Lou Gehrig. And I remember thinking, what a great organization. How I'd like to be a part of that. And so when they asked me, I'd say, and the Funny thing was, not funny, but uh, the good thing was, the Yankees had a scout at that game. And before that last game, he asked the coach, I was playing second base, and he asked the coach, man, he had a few balls at me and shortstop in the hole. And his name was Spud Chandler. Hmm. And he came up to me after the game. He said, I want you to know now that uh, the Yankees will sign you. We'll keep in touch with you, and uh, I promise you that we'll sign. And then Mayo, Mayo Smith was the next scout that came my way, and he, he he said the same thing. He said, now, as soon as you graduate from high school, there's no draft at that time, so right. you could sign with anybody. And out of the 16 teams, 12 gave me exactly the same offer. And, uh, and at that time, if you got over a $4,000 bonus, you'd have to go up to the major leagues and spend two years on the parent roster, yep. and that would be a waste of time for a 17-year-old. Yeah. And uh, 
And so it was no problem. There was a guy from the Dodgers that was really after me. He gave a glove to my girlfriend at that time and some other things. And just we had a fellow that owned the ball club here in town, and he had in he had insights or he had, he was part of the Yankee story. Mm-hmm. And he had arranged for me to go to New York as a 17 year old and work out. And so he had a private plane. He opened the Coca Cola bottling company. He said, I got it all worked out. We're going to fly to New York. And I said, oh, I've never been on a plane. Mr. Heath, can we go any other way? I said, I'm, <laughs> I'm scared to fly. He said, okay. He laughed. He said, we'll go by train. And we took a train and checked into the Hotel New Yorker, took a cab out to the stadium. And I worked out for three days. They were playing the St. Louis Browns. And Bobby Young was the second baseman. He had two home runs and beat the Yankees two out of the three games I saw wow. that that time. And that's the same team that Don Larson came out of. And uh, I, I mentioned the generational thing. You still have a following with some of the uh, some of the current Yankees. There's a couple of South Carolina kids there: Brett Gardner, Jordan Montgomery. Yeah, you're yeah. keeping in touch with those guys too, aren't you? Well, not only Brett. Brett is from Holly Hill. That's about 25 miles away. But um, Montgomery. Yep, he's uh, he's from Sumter. Yeah, right? he's from Sumter, right? Left-hand pitcher. And of course, he's been on the d- disabled list and. Uh, Hopefully he'll come back. He won 10 games. He was looking fantastic. And we have another young boy that's a left-handed pitcher also from Sumter, and uh, I think he was in AAA last year. Sumter's a good baseball town, especially American Legion. Now, it's always been had American Legion baseball since 1929. How, how much do you enjoy coming back to Old Timers Day? Um, I enjoy them. I, I was honestly asked to come back every year since I retired. And... Uh, and my wife enjoyed it much more than I did. In those first years, I was young enough, 31, I played my first old-timers game, <laughs> yeah. young enough to still play. And and uh, I think probably I was 75 years old, and I'd been every year. I think I missed one. I had a daughter going to the mission field that, that coincided with the Yankee date, and I missed one. And uh, and and I got there, and What's, what's his name that uh, coached the old-timers? He was a Yankee infielder. He had a nickname. Uh, oh, Stick? Stick. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, he said, Rich, he said, you don't need to go out in the field. He said, why don't you just DH? He said, uh, you don't need to go out in the field and play. And uh, I said, okay, that's fine with me. And uh, he said, who do you want to bat against? I said, it doesn't make a difference. Everybody's fine. And he said, Bouton? I said, oh, not Bouton. Yes, <laughs> Anybody else? <laughs> And one of the younger players said, Rich, he was standing close by. He said, out in the pitch today, I'll throw it right in there to you. And he did. And on the second pitch, I had a line drive. And I've got this on film. And it went over the left fielder's head and caromed like they used to do out towards center field, toward the monuments mm-hmm. in the old stadium. And I could still run, believe it or not, at 75. I uh, just continued hunting and doing all the things that I could run. I was running pretty good down to first base. And Cliff Johnson Stopped me and grabbed me, put his arm around me, and said, "Oh man, you don't need to have a heart attack out of here." <laughs> Mickey Rivers, come run for this old man. And so Mickey came out, and the ball that outfield hadn't even gotten the ball yet. And I stood on first base. I remember the announcer, PA announcer, said, "Well, there goes a triple that's been turned into a single, <laughs> single or something like that." And, but that was the last time I batted, and uh, and then I did not go back last year. I wrote him a nice letter two years ago. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, I'm 80 years old now. And I said, uh, I just, uh, maybe it was three years ago now. And I said, I just uh, feel like it's time to, to call it quits from going back. And uh, thank you for all the years, you know, everything like that. And Greg King called me up. He said, now, I got your letter. But he said, did you get my email? And I said, no. 
He said, well, read my, read my email and call me back. This was three years ago, I guess. And I read the email and said, can you come up a day earlier and stay a day later? We want you to do such and such. And it ended up they would pay me more than I made my second year in baseball with the Yankees. I said, okay, I'll come. Wow. <laughs> and I did go, but I told him the next day, I said, now nah, I am retiring, so don't call me and don't, don't make it too enticing anymore. So I didn't go last year. I missed it. My wife, my wife likes to go, the part I don't like, I enjoy everything, but I don't like the, the prelude. They had to go to a nightclub in New York and, sure. uh, and uh, just sit around and talk and so forth. And, a lot of loud music and all—it's just not my thing. And so, I, <laughs> the game itself I enjoyed, but when I quit playing, I think it was just a little bit different. When fans still recognize you and talk to you about old memories, what does it mean to you? Well, that means a lot. It really does. And uh, I—I'm I, honored to talk to folks that are real baseball people that can remember those things. That uh, and I—I I spent a lot of time now today. You'd be amazed living here in Sumter, South Carolina. Right now, today, I get anywhere from five to sometimes as high as ten. Now, it's dropped off a little bit now after 50-some-odd years. But I don't remember a day going out getting less than two or three um, letters. And most of the letters are a little different now. They say, my grandfather was a Yankee, Yankee fan, my father was a Yankee fan, and I'm a Yankee fan. And on the Internet, I know all your stats. Yeah. And would you please sign this for me? Wow. And, of course, now they know the ones that will sign and send them back. And they also send you an addressed envelope or um, big envelope for yeah. pictures with the postage on it. Yeah. And so there's a book that's out that tells the one that will find and send back and so forth. Right, right. And, of course, I've been doing that all these years and wouldn't dare charge anybody for it or anything. My thanks to Bobby Richardson, the gentleman from South Carolina who at age 84 is still quite the storyteller. He is one of the last remaining links to the great Yankees teams of the 50s that still shows up to Old Timers Day. And Richardson still is near the top of the list of the best second baseman in Yankees history. Please take some time to check out the 30 with Murdy archive at radio.com, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Take a moment to subscribe and review and all that jazz. And until next time, thanks for listening. I'm Sweeney Murdy. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.